We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. It won't be long till your Bible will open to that spot, uh, because we will be in it a lot. We're studying the efficient functioning of the church. And the chapter deals with, actually shows you how not to do it more than anything else, because Paul has corrected the Corinthians on their very inefficient uh, operation within their church. Uh, things were just not how they ought to be. And so Paul is correcting them through this chapter. And my goal of this is not to correct as much as to just hold us ourselves accountable to God's Word. That we see it and see what God expects of His church. And if there's any place in there that we notice that we need improvement, let's do it. Because I think we all would agree, we want this church to glorify Jesus Christ. And uh, so we're going to be very careful to listen to his words, because these are his words uh, written through the Apostle Paul. Now, we're studying in verse number 4, 5, and 6. The passage says in verse 4, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. Verse 5, there are varieties of ministries, but the same Lord. Verse 6, there are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. Now, you might have some variety in the words you just heard here this morning if you're following a text other than the New American Standard. That's the one I read from. Many times when we get into the study of gifts, there's a danger that has to be avoided. And I kind of think of it as uh, when I was younger, I was part of the Cub Scouts. Maybe some of you were too, years and years ago. I was part of the Cub Scouts, and we had books we had to work through to earn our merit badges that we proudly displayed on our uniform. And the goal was to look like some sort of general who just won every battle ever and just have all this loaded metal on the side of your... So if I lean this way, it's because I really did well. Um, I, I got... matter of fact, in, in the, the last uh, section of those... Um, uh, those opportunities. I I went through the last book and and I got all but one medal. And today it still bothers me that I didn't get that one medal. But the one medal was on swimming. And guess what? I don't do. Uh, I'm not a swimmer. And I said, how do you possibly get a medal on that one? It's like pilots that never fly. I don't know what you call it, but I couldn't swim, so I never got that medal. Um, so, anyway, I, I just think of that when I think of how some people like to display their spiritual gift as if it was a merit badge, as if they're loaded with some sort of decoration, medals, and such like that, that they want the whole world to see and notice them. That is not 1 Corinthians chapter 12. The whole point of 1 Corinthians 12 is that God gets noticed on how he uses people like you and me in such incredible ways. His variety, his gifts, and the effects are all powerful displays of God at work. And that's why I like to stop and review that over and over again to remind us that this is his church. He builds this church, not us. Isn't it the words of Christ? I will build my church. And when we read this passage... The second part of each of those phrases is not the smaller part, it's the bigger part. There are varieties of gift, but it's the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministry, but it's the same Lord. 
and there are varieties of effects, but it's the same God who works all things in all persons. That's how it's built. And we want to keep that focus. It's Him. And so not look at it as what do I merit out of all this, but rather what is God so gracious to do through me and uh, bring glory to Himself and build His church. So I hope we could keep that perspective as we go because we're going to start talking about the gifts themselves today. And that's not in any way to glorify ourselves. All right? That's not what it's for. It's just to show there are varieties. All right? There are varieties. And that's our emphasis today in verse 4. There are varieties of gifts. And let's talk about what those are. First, Heavenly Father, we come to you and ask for your guidance in our study today. It's your word. It's your meaning, too. Help us to understand it and put it into practice. And of all things, Lord, bring you glory and do it your way. Help us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Now, I told you before, I've said this, if you set up two columns in your mind as you go through verse 4, 5, and 6, it helps. Because column number one are the working parts. This is what we are involved in, and that are gifts, varieties of gifts, verse 4, varieties of ministries, verse 5, varieties of effects in verse 6. Now, all three of those are different. They may sound like, well, what's he saying here? Is he just interchanging words? It's actually kind of a, a, I don't know how, it's as you open up one, the next one opens, and the next one opens. And when you talk about gifts, there are gifts, and then Within those gifts, every one of them has ministries all over the place. And the variety of that is incredible. And then from that, every ministry has effects that go all over the place too. And it just keeps blowing out bigger and bigger as it goes. And that's just another testimony how great our God is. It's not out of control. (laughs) He knows what he's doing. Because that's column one, but column two is the worker himself. The one who has activated these things, the ones who created them, the one who oversees them, the one who sustains them, empowers them, and that is God. And he's identified as the Holy Spirit in this chapter. We're going to see it a lot this way. But that is God. He's not assistant God, right? He is God. And as God, he can be called Lord, he can be called God. And it's all in the same passage. And he dominates the other column because all of it comes from him. Beginning to end, it comes from him. Everything in between comes from him. If anyone gets the glory, guess who gets it? He does. And that's important to see what's happening in the, even the grammar of the sentence in front of us. And so we get down to the word variety. There are varieties. Let's go down the, the, the working part list here. The part we're involved in. In verse number 4, there are varieties of gifts. Diversities. You might have the word. I gave you a new word last week. Greek students know it better. Diaresis. That's a little grammar tool to say pronounce each part. And that's the point. When God has set up these gifts, they're all distinct. They're all distributed in his fashion, in his way, built his way. Important to note, there are differences they were meant to be. That just shows the creativity of our God, for one thing. 
but also it takes us away from thinking that ours is somehow better than anybody else's. Because God made them different on purpose. Each part has its place. And there's diversities of them. And so he designed it so that each part can be studied, understood, even incorporated into one's life as separate from everybody else's. And yet at the same time, we need each other to make it work. All the parts come together. And that shows again how great God is in this. He's good with variety. He's good with variety. And he doesn't mind that we emphasize each part as long as we don't think that my part's the only part. Just so you know what your part is, that's important. In 1 Corinthians 12, verse 4, the New American Standard says, there are distinctive varieties and distributions of endowments. And that's kind of a fun word there, because that's the nature of a gift. That's the nature of a gift. We'll talk about that in just a, a second but uh, add to it what I closed with last week. Uh, John Calvin's thoughts were really great. The symmetry of the church consists, so to speak, of a manifold unity. Good words. A variety of gifts that are directed to the same object. That each distinction of gift, as well as its offices, all harmonize into one thing. That in this, no man gets the glory, but nobody also rashly intrudes himself into another's place, confounding the distinction which the Lord has established. I think those are good warning words for us that we don't uh, start to look like Paul addresses here in the Corinthian church. Look at other people as inferior, unimportant, or to start thinking of ourselves as superior, and we're important. And so those kind of things need to be dealt with as we go through it. Um, but remember, it is a gift. What an appropriate term the Holy Spirit told Paul to write there. These are gifts. Charisma is actually the Greek word, which is kind of fun, because we think of charisma as somebody's personality. <laughs> But uh, it comes from the Greek word of a divine gratuity. Something God has given previously, the spiritual endowment, the miraculous faculty to do something. It's from the word grace. And grace is never earned. You cannot buy grace. You cannot earn grace. You cannot work for grace. That nullifies the whole nature of grace, right? It's a simple picture. But if somebody came to you because it was your birthday and gave you a gift, are you going to pull out your wallet and pay for it? I hope not. Well, I don't know. Depends if I'm giving it to you, maybe. Uh, but uh, we don't give it with the impression of receiving. That's not the nature of giving, is it? We give. That's the nature of grace. It's free. It's given by God. It's a free gift. It's not earned. It's not even natural within us. That's not something that just happens. Because gifts are not natural talents. They're not natural skills. They're not natural abilities. And that's the point. These are sovereignly and supernaturally 
bestowed upon us. God chose them. Don't forget that. It was God's choice to give you that gift, whatever that gift might be. That was God's choice. If you're having a problem with it, talk to the one who gave it to you. Go and talk to him about it and say, Lord, I think I got ripped off. Go ahead, try that. I think I got ripped You gave me the wrong gift. He'll say, no, I know what I'm doing. Trust me. I know exactly what you needed to be enabled to do for the sake of my church. And that's the point. It's for the sake of the church, not for you, not for me. I don't have my gifts for me. I have them for you. And you don't have your gifts for you. You have them for us. And that's what the ministry is supposed to look like because we're edifying one another. We're building each other up. And that's what our gifts are for, to build up, to build up, to build up, so that we all look like Christ. And so if you're holding back on your spiritual gift, you know what God has intended you to do, and you're not doing it, folks. You're hurting the whole church, not just some sort of pity party you're looking at yourself. I'm sorry, am I being too harsh? I just don't want to be too harsh, but I just want to say a few things that sometimes we get wrapped up in ourselves when we start talking about spiritual gifts. And when we do that, we have the distortion all over the place, and then we don't understand why. That's the biggest word, why, 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 why. And when we're doing that, then we forgot what God has designed it to be. So when you separate these gifts, let's talk about this. When we separate the gifts out, because it says there's a variety of gifts, some people say it's so simple, there are speaking gifts and there are serving gifts. And I, I think that's okay, but at the same time I think, but isn't speaking serving? So I have trouble with exact terminology here, but I understand the point. There are speaking gifts and serving gifts, and some people can't speak to save their life. And some people can't serve very well, but they can speak a lot. And so if you divide the gifts up among things like apostles and prophets and, and those who have knowledge and those who have wisdom and those who have teaching, those who are able to ex- exhort one another, they might all fall into the speaking side of things. And then you've got the nonverbal gifts, they might call them, of uh, leadership or helps or giving or mercy or faith or discernment or something like that on the other side. All that to say is there's variety here. There's variety in the way God has designed it so that whether one part or another part, they're the same together to bring edification to the church. And that's very important, that the church be edified in all that we say, all that we do. Both of those categories are important. Not one is more important than the other. If I wanted to sum it up, I'd sum it up in just a couple of thoughts, and this is what they would be. Number one, gifts are given by God, the Holy Spirit. They are given by God, the Holy Spirit. You can't go to school to get this gift. All right? They they don't do that. That's not possible. Gifts are given by God, not the Holy Spirit. Gifts are different on purpose. Gifts are different on purpose. Gifts are for the edification of the church, not for self. Gifts are for the edification of the church and not for self. And then gifts used the right way brings glory to God. Yes, the church is built. That's what he wants. 
But church gifts used the right way brings glory to God. So understand all that? Simple enough? Because that's what we're starting to look at when we look at the gifts themselves. Now, I cannot say as I go through this passage or any of the passages we have in front of you where it starts to list the gifts that I can say the list is now exhausted. We covered them all. I wouldn't say that to tell the truth because that would say that I understand God's workings perfectly and I can't say I do. But I do know that the ones God has chosen to highlight in His Word are very important. Very important that we understand them. They each had a function and they were necessary to the growth of the church. Now, I want to understand another thing with you. I use the word church here on purpose because you won't find these particular gifts in the Old Testament because the church wasn't there. All right? Very important to make that distinction too. You won't find these particular gifts that we study as part of the Old Testament economy. And I would even go further to say that you won't be here for the tribulation, I hope. If you are, you're in trouble. Well, you really would be in trouble, but don't do that. Um, But uh, in the tribulation, these gifts are not needed there either. Because that's not the church. And the millennial kingdom, it's not about that either, because that's not the church. I'm very important to understand these are church gifts. Gifts to the church for the sake of the church, to build up the church, and that's what they're there for. They're unique to our era. And I'm giving you that emphasis because when we start to understand the gifts, we have to line them up with the dispensation of the church and the church function because so many people will go into the Old Testament to explain them. Say, oh, that's the way... No, 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 that wasn't the church. The church is in the New Testament and that's our emphasis that we're going to do. I'm going to be intentional. There are lists, 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Corinthians 14, where we are. No, we're in 12. 1 Corinthians 14 is two chapters later. Ephesians 4 has a list, and I read that passage a lot. He gave to some apostles and prophets and teachers, and all those. We're, we're touching on that every now and then. Um, we have another list in 1 Peter chapter 4. That's some of the places. And 1 Peter even goes into the manner of the gifts. Romans 12 goes into the manner of how we use our gifts. But I'm going to walk through these, and I'm going to start saying some things, and it might... It might make you think. You might say, wait a minute, Pastor Bob. I don't hesitate to say, somebody's going to say that. (laughs) They're going to say, now wait, that's not the way I was taught. That's not what I've seen. That's not, I understand, okay? I understand. Let me just lay it out what I see. And then we can talk later if you need to talk. First gift I want to address is the one called apostleship. Apostleship. Here in chapter 12, verse 28, verse 28, here's our list. God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. He makes a very important statement right after that. Not everybody's an apostle. 
Okay. Now, if you go into Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, it says he gave some as apostles. That's usually the first of a list when you see a list. Apostles and then prophets, then evangelists and pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. It's for the church. Whatever the gift is, it was meant for the church. Okay? That we will start with. Now, in general sense, the word apostle means one who is sent. One who is sent. We tend to think of that, well, they must be the, the, the generals of the army. They must be the, the leaders of the group. They must be the heads of the tribes or whatever. you. We, we put them at the very, very top. And yet their job is one of the lowest. They were sent. They were sent. Ask the Apostle Paul how much he enjoyed that ministry. He loved teaching and all that, but being sent to locations like he was sent to and what he endured in certain places, that was a tough job. I'm sure at times he would have said, why can't you pick somebody else to send? But at least for today, let me bru- my bruises heal. All right? They were sent. That's what it means. Sent ones. Sent ones. Now we know in a technical sense the, the apostles were the twelve. They were called disciples most of the time in the Gospels, weren't they? You read disciple, 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 disciple. And then once you get into the book of Acts, the term changes. And it's apostle, 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 apostle. We find that generally it was those first 12. And then we know later Paul wore that title. Uh, they called Barnabas an apostle in Acts chapter 14, verse 14. That gift seems to be primarily for the founding of the church. And it was given special signs that went with it. The distinguishing mark, 1 Corinthians 12, you're still there. Verse number 12. Do I have this right? Hang No, 2 Corinthians. Woo! Almost said the wrong passage. I did say the wrong passage. 2 Corinthians 12, 12. Sorry. This is where it says, these are the signs of a true apostle. All right? What are they? It says, the signs of a true apostle uh, were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. So as Paul is defining what's the distinguishing mark of an apostle, he says, well, perseverance is one of them, but also signs, wonders, and miracles. In Ephesians 2, verse 20, it adds that Jesus Christ built the church on the foundation of the apostles. On the foundation. You put that down on the bottom, don't you? Isn't that the first thing you do before you build the house? You lay the foundation. The foundation were the apostles and the prophets, and Jesus Christ was the chief cornerstone. Peter explained this, matter of fact, in Acts chapter number 1. Go with me just for a minute. Acts 1, start in verse 15. Let's, let's follow through with this. This is rather interesting. Because you might be sitting there thinking, well, I wonder if I've got that gift. Let's see how you line up with this. Peter's explanation. Acts 1, starting in verse 15. 
At this time, Peter stood up among the brothers and sisters. A group of about 120 were there and said, all right, now, what is our time frame? The crucifixion of Christ is already done, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension into heaven, right? That's all done. And here are the disciples now. We're going to call them apostles. They're, they're seated around the table, and they're looking at each other, and they realize one of us is missing. There's an empty seat. Whose was that? Judas. All right, there's a, a seat missing. In, and they started studying the Scripture, and they found out that, you know, God said that would happen. <laughs> and God said that we would have to appoint somebody in his place. And so it's time. Let's do it. We've got to have our twelfth. And so let's do it. So Peter stood up among them, and he said, verse 16, Brothers, the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received his share in this ministry. And then verse 18 is really ugly. This man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness. Falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his intestines gushed out. And it became known to all the residents of Jerusalem. As a result of the field was called Hekeldama, which in their language that is the field of blood. For it was written in the book of Psalms, May his residence be made desolate, and may there be none living in it, and may another take his office. So they read that, and they said, okay, we got to put somebody in the place of Judas. So, therefore, verse 21, it is necessary that of the man who hath accompanied us all the time that Jesus went in and out and among us, qualification number one, you had to been with Jesus and his disciples the whole time Jesus was in ministry. Right? Anybody qualify yet? Just checking. Want to make sure. Okay. Um, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection as well. Not only were you there from John's baptism all the way through the ministry of Christ, his death, burial, his resurrection, you had to have seen that. All right? So, that was the qualifications they looked for. They put forward two men. There were two men there that were qualified. We talk about Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and a man named Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, know the hearts of all people. Show which one of these two you have chosen. Neither of these guys came to that meeting that day saying, I want to be an apostle. I'm looking to be an apostle. Suddenly, it was all up to who? God's choice. God's choice. They wanted to know who God had chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. They drew lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was added to the what? Eleven apostles. You see the terminology? I'm going to say it's simple. That's not a gift for today. Because I don't think anybody else qualifies for it. You weren't there, were you? Don't tell me if you were. I mean, that would give away your age, no doubt. But that's a ministry for them. It laid the foundation for the church. It was God's choice. They were individuals who had a unique 
relationship to Jesus Christ. That number was small. You say, well, how did, how did Paul fit into that picture? Paul was about the same age as almost any of the disciples were. Paul was a Pharisee. We know that, too. And did the Pharisees ever have contact with Jesus during his ministry? Oh, boy. I don't know, but how many times the Pharisees were there heckling Jesus and and trying to trap him that Paul might not have been in that crowd? He was certainly there the day Stephen was stoned. He was there when he was going in church after church and pulling people out of their homes and bringing them into prison because they were Christians. And then Jesus met him on the road to Emmaus, didn't he? Or not Emmaus, on the road to uh, Damascus. He met him on that road. Did he see the resurrected Lord? Oh, yes, he did. He said, I don't even belong in that crowd. But by God's grace, he made me what I am. The Apostle Paul fits into that, too. Apparently, Barnabas would have had to have been there, too, to wear that title. He would have known some of those things. But we never see their names in the Gospels. But beyond all that, I don't believe it's a gift for today, and I'll tell you why in just a minute. All right? The second group was prophets or prophecy. You have it in Romans 12, 6. 1 Corinthians, you're still there? Chapter 12, verse number 10. We'll go back to this verse again. To another, the effecting of miracles, and to another, prophecy. And to another, the distinguishing of spirits. To another, the kind of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. He's going through a list here. It started way back up around... Oh, verse number 7. He started in on explaining this list. But prophecy was in that list. You see it also in 1 Corinthians 14. Matter of fact, it's heavy in chapter 14. And then we see it in Ephesians 4.11. He gave some as apostles and prophets and so on. The word prophetes, the Greek word, is to set forth truth. To set forth truth. There is an element, as we usually equate a prophet with somebody who could tell the future, don't we? Oh, that's what a prophet does. He goes around telling you the future. Um, Actually, he's just telling you what God told him to do. Because a prophet cannot tell you the future. Only God can. How much of us know what's happening in the next ten minutes? You could assume Pastor Bob's still speaking. All right? But... We can't tell the future. Prophets can't tell the future unless God told them to tell the future. That's all their job was, was to tell what God had told them. They were to set it forth. Matter of fact, the Old Testament prophets, I'm just doing this. I know I gave you a big warning about that earlier, but just let me remind you. The Old Testament prophets spent more time on bringing the people back to the truth of the commandments than they did on telling you the future. Most of their prophecy was, you did that wrong, you did that wrong, you did that wrong, go back to where you started. And they keep pointing to the law. That was their job, to set forth the truth. To point people back to the truth, where people needed to go. Well, prophecy has some sort of a flavor to that. They're telling forth the truth based on the truth of God's word or what God had told them to say or God told them to write. And sometimes it's future, but more times than not, it's a practical for today. It's to correct people for the day. 
some people say, well, that's a very active ministry today in what a pastor does and, or a preacher or such like that. But let me take you back to this picture. Like apostleship, prophecy can be general in nature. It can be technical in nature. It's proclaiming, yes. It's preaching, yes. It could include predicting the future, yes. But when we see it show up in Scripture, we see it in several places, especially like a man named Agabus. You ever hear of him? He's in the book of Acts, chapter 11. He predicted a severe famine was coming. As a result, it stirred up the church to take up an offering for the people of Judea who were going to go through it. God gave him that word. He didn't just invent that. And then we find prophets in the church of Antioch. In Acts chapter 13. And they were designated to help pull out certain people. God says, pick out Saul for me. Pick out Barnabas for me. I need them. And so we have the role of a prophet there. We have Philip. Interesting story. Philip in Acts 21 had four daughters who were prophetess. He said, hmm, that's an interesting story. But you know what? When you're done with that story, Agabus is also in the scene too. You say, I don't even know who that guy is, but he's there too. And it's very interesting to study all these things. But the prophets were there. There were prophets in the Corinthian church. As Paul is addressing them, he's talking about those with the gifts of prophecy. Now, let me tell you what it was all about. Founding of the church. Founding of the church. Let me explain something. I don't have a lot of time, I'm sorry to say, because I've got a lot of notes, but... Here we go. The founding of the church. I'm going to explain this out, and maybe that will explain a lot more, too. There were gifts that were necessary until the New Testament was completely established. Let me explain. You probably know that the church came into existence about the year 33 A.D. That'd be Acts chapter 2. It's right on the heels of the resurrection and ascension of Christ. Not many days after, we have the apostles meeting together on the day of Pentecost, and the Holy Spirit comes, and suddenly they're proclaiming the gospel, and people are being saved, and they added to the church. Suddenly there was a church. All right? There wasn't one prior to that moment. There was at that time, A.D. 33. If you lived in that day... And you said on maybe the year A.D. 34, for example, hey, let's go to church. Well, there was one. What did you carry in your hand? Was it your New Testament Bible? No, because it wasn't written yet. You went to church, and if you carried anything, it would have been Old Testament scrolls. Aren't you glad things have changed? I mean, these are not small things. And they carried the scrolls. The church was a new thing. And there was no scripture written yet to tell you how to do it. A missionary movement breaks out in the 40s. Paul starts his journeys. You've read about Paul's three missionary journeys, perhaps. And Paul's out there going to Galatia, and he's going to Ephesus, and he's going to Corinth, and he's going up to Greece and Macedonia and all these other places. And Paul's out there ministering and founding churches. In Acts chapter 15, they all got together and started talking about it. We call it the Jerusalem Council, because all these new things are happening. And among other things, Gentiles were being saved. 
And they're like, what do we do now? That, number one, they never believed it could happen. They said, how could a Gentile ever be saved? That doesn't make sense. And so they actually had a whole council meeting, brought in all the bigwigs, Paul and Peter and everybody else, and they're all talking about, but I saw a Gentile get saved. Really, it happened. The Holy Spirit came upon it. It was obvious. And they're like, amazing. Amazing. Now what do we do? What do you do with them? What do we expect them to do? What are the rules? We don't have any rules. Do we make them like Jews? They're not Jews. So what do we do? Two books sprang out out of that convention. One was to by the writer James, and the other was a book called Galatians uh, by the Apostle Paul. This is right around 49 B.C. The church is 16 years old, and they've never had a New Testament book. Never had it. And now they needed instruction. And God is giving them instruction to write out to help these churches who had never seen it before. You go into all the ministry of the 50s. Another decade goes by. And the book's written, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, Romans. Is that a good book to write about then? 1 and 2 Corinthians. How not to do it. These books are being written, and that's not much to carry if you went to church in A.D. 51, or A.D. 55, or A.D. 57. You started going to church in A.D. 60, and you still had about six books in your New Testament. That's not a lot to work with. And so then you, you start to watch what's happening around you. How old are people like Paul and Peter? And John, do you know if they were in their 30s when Christ was there, they're up in their 60s now. Is that an issue? Well, number one, yes. They're aging, and they didn't live quite as long as perhaps some of us do. But that's beside the point. The other fact was persecution had risen up in such a horrible way in the 60s by a guy named Nero. Ever hear of his name? He was martyring these apostles. He went after them. Peter would die by Nero. Paul would die by Nero. And you think the Lord knew that was coming? He says, Paul, write this down. Peter, write this down. Under the instruction of the Holy Spirit, books like Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, uh, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, some of those are the manual for doing church. How do you pick a leader? What's a leader supposed to look like? All of that instruction was given right then, and then the Lord took the apostles away. I think God's timing was perfect. Because we're still reading those to this day, and still saying, oh, that's how you do it. All the way up to that point, they did not have those records. So who told them the truth? Who is the one that led them as foundational people to say, this is what God said, trust him? It was apostles and prophets because God's word had not been revealed to them yet. It wasn't finished. And so God was using these people because the church was dependent upon them. And as their dependence was no longer needed because they were going to be leaving, God says, now, let's get that book written. But these apostles and these prophets went about with signs and wonders. And those signs and wonders were simply to authenticate that their message was really from God. How do you know that God 
guy's telling the truth. He just brought this guy who's dead back to life. Is that pretty convincing to you? That's how they saw it. And they said, wow, that's why God did what they did. When we're reading of these gifts, they were active in the 50s. That's when Corinthians was written. Apostles and prophets were still there. And he says, yes, those were gifts God gave to the church to develop the church, to mature the church, to build the church. And yet, when the New Testament was completed, some jobs were no longer necessary. You see it? They weren't necessary. Because guess what we're built on today? The foundation of God's Word. It's authenticated. It's true. It's our authority. We say that right in item number one, don't we? Our doctrinal statement. What's it say? The Bible is a verbally inspired word of God. It is inherent in its original autographs, inerrant, and is the church's absolute authority. We believe that. That's why we call ourselves the Bible church. We're built on that. We don't need an apostle today. I'm not minimizing their work. They had a lot of hard work to do. But the foundation was laid. It was finished. The gift of the apostle and the gift of the prophet who would tell you what God said wasn't needed any longer because now you have what God said. See it? They also needed miracles and healings to prove it. To prove that uh, something was happening here that God only can do. All right. I've got a lot more. And if I start on this paragraph, I've got to do this one. What are you guys doing today? Uh, then I've got to do this one. I just can't stop on that. I've got to. Will you come back next week? I've got something else I want to share. This is, this is just so much here. There's so much here. But I hope you're starting to get a feel for the beauty of God's variety. How he brought this about is astounding to me. This is a miracle that we get to witness how God has designed his church and the various parts he put into it at the right time. So I just want that to be an impression on our hearts today. Even though I didn't get to the application, I'm just going to bring it back to this point. May we always put God in the front, his way, not ours, and understand the beauty of that way and rejoice in it. Okay? Let's do that. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. There is really so much for us to learn, so much, and yet you're gracious to give us another day to do that. And I pray, Lord, that you challenge us with this. Help us to see things from your perspective, so that your name is glorified in our midst. We want that more than anything. We want to do church your way, and not ours, not some sort of scheme that we've bought or that we've uh, learned from some system in this world, but we want it to be your kind of church operating in your way for your glory and for the sake of your people. So help us to keep our eyes straight on you as we go through our understanding of these things. And we praise you, Lord, for it. Because the deeper we get into this, the more magnificent you show to be. And I thank you for that. And praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.